In keeping with the Christmas theme of today's episode, this episode's treasure friend is a podcast about children. Murderous children! Murderous Miners is a weekly true crime podcast bringing tales of killer kids. Every Monday, they cover tale after tale of murderous children throughout the years. Find them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Killer Kids Pod. And now, on to the adventure. Ten eighty seven, Myra, Turkey. Did you know? If not for Emperor Constantine, Christianity might not have taken off as one of the world's leading religions. Whether or not Constantine really believed in the cause when he chose to convert, or if he just saw the direction the wind was blowing and did what was most advantageous for his leadership, is a topic of debate that we're not going to get into because this has nothing to do with lost treasure. Regardless, Constantine, as the leader of the Roman Byzantine Empire, established a new capital in the Anatolian, or Asian Minor region, and called it, fittingly enough, Constantinople. In 1071, the Byzantine Empire had lost most of its territory to the invading Seljuk Turks. As you may recall from last episode, the Byzantines would actually manage to hold out until the 1400s, when Constantinople would then go on to become known as Istanbul, but that's nobody's business but the Turks. Anyway, in the midst of these battles lay the harbor town of Myra, today called Demra, which remains a jewel of the breathtaking Aegean Sea. During this time of conflict, many ships came and went out of port, so it wasn't too suspicious when a crew of Italian merchants docked in the harbor and proceeded towards the tomb of the city's patron saint. The crypt was a popular destination for Christian pilgrims in that region of the world, mostly because this wasn't just any old saint we're talking about, but jolly old Saint Nicholas, who you and I might know better as Santa Claus. The bones of Saint Nicholas were valued as sacred relics and kept in the monastery crypt. In Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity, it is believed that the physical remains of a saint, which are often enshrined in gilded treasure cases or ornaments, retain the powers of that particular saint and serve as divine connector. For a quick rundown, each saint is said to have a specific type of miracle or mystical specialty that they are known for, hence the name Patron Saint. They're kind of like Catholic X-Men. On St. Nicholas's feast day, it was said that a sweet-smelling liquid substance emanated from the saint's bones. This elixir, called myrrh, was collected by the attending monks and then sold as a powerful healing agent to tourists and pilgrims. Pilgrims like the Italian sailors who docked in port that one spring day. The merchants hailed from the Apulian coastal city of Bari, geographically speaking, on Italy's heel. And when they arrived at the monastery, they asked the monks to see the bones of the saint for themselves. The monks permitted them, at first, but then they grew uneasy and politely told the sailors to leave. Of course, later that night, the sailors came back, because, twist, this is a theft. The Italians, a people not exactly known for their subtlety, and I can say that I am one, hadn't planned out a meticulous heist, but their goal was to steal the bones of St. Nicholas himself. Instead of elaborate trickery or Mission Impossible-style deception, they sort of just barged on in and yanked the casket open with a crowbar. The Italians made off with the remains of St. Nicholas, which they quietly took back to their ship under the cover of darkness. 
Except not really quietly, because as legend has it, they were pursued by an angry, torch-wielding mob. Either way, the caper of the claws was complete. Saint Nick had just been nicked. When the Italians returned to Bari, they were met by a much more enthusiastic crowd, and on May 9, 1087, the merchants presented the Diocese of Bari with a beautiful, specially made casket housing the saint's remains. The sailors then made an oath to St. Nicholas that they would keep him safe inside a magnificent church named in his honor. And then they proceeded to make heaps of money off of tourists. But this isn't a simple story of thievery, and it's a bit more complicated than an opportunistic crime. Whether the merchants were in the wrong is up for history to decide. Almost 900 years later, their descendants would make yet another seafaring journey, this time across the Atlantic. They would settle in America, specifically in the borough of Queens, New York City. And then, two generations later, their descendant would go on to, well, start the podcast you're listening to right now. Because as it turns out, my ancestors kidnapped Santa Claus. When it comes to saints, it's often a tall order separating legend from fact. But if what we know about the man named St. Nicholas is true, then miracles aside, his story is already larger than life. So what is the gritty origin story behind the man that would become Santa Claus? Nicholas of Myra was born in the Anatolian city of Patara to wealthy parents, Epiphanius and Johanna. The family Epiphanius were Christians, in a region where this new religion was offered a marginal amount of protection, at least compared to its neighbors. Nicholas was born in the right place at the right time, pretty much, and he was purportedly very religious in his youth, which would have made sense as Anatolia was going through some heavy shit. Even for a wealthy Christian, Nicholas would not have been immune or ignorant to the religious warfare plaguing his region. Also, there was that literal plague that was plaguing his region, which unfortunately claimed the life of his parents. Nicholas was taken in by his uncle, also named Nicholas, and definitely not named Obi-Wan Kenobi, who taught Nick the Younger the ways of the clergy, which included reading and writing, as well as scholarly pursuits. From this, Nicholas decided to go into the priesthood. During his teenage years, Nicholas embarked on the pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which was already a journey fraught with danger, but made worse for Nicholas because he had already begun to make a name for himself as a bombastic and radical priest. Nicholas was a bit of a hothead, extraordinarily passionate, and no doubt a little bit messed up from childhood tragedy. I can relate. But generally, Nicholas of Myra liked people, Unless they were pagan, but we'll touch upon that later. To lay low during his adventure to Bethlehem, Nicholas hitched a ride on a ship coming in from Egypt. On his first night, he experienced a frightening dream of a violent tempest at sea. When he awoke, he told his fellow pilgrims about this vision and instructed them not to panic or let their fear get the better of them, because when the storm hit, they would be fine. You see... Nicholas had received a message from God that the ship would be protected. 
Later that afternoon, the skies did grow black with storm clouds, and an abrupt sea squall rocked the ship with torrential rain and wind. Though the sailors had taken proper measures to keep the ship from capsizing, the waves tossed the boat and sent the passengers cowering below deck. During the storm, one brave sailor volunteered to climb the mainmast to secure it and prevent disaster. But though he was successful, when he made his descent, he slipped and cracked his head on the deck, killing him instantly. All the while, Nicholas entered a trance-like state of prayer in the hopes that God would dispel the storm clouds. And sure enough, the storm passed. When the crew crept from below deck, they discovered the bleeding corpse of the ship hand. His compatriots mourned his sacrifice, but their mourning was short-lived when Nicholas prayed over the sailor's body and brought him back to life. His wounds closed, and without any residual pain, the sailor was miraculously healed. Nicholas made it safely to the Holy Land in one piece, and compared to how he ended up in death, that's an achievement, as we'll find out. He stayed a while with monks who resided in a mountain that overlooked the town of Bethlehem, which you may recall is kind of instrumental to Christmas. In 317, Nicholas returned back to Asia Minor, and because of his exploits and simply being the best around, he became the official Bishop Amira. That said, Nicholas was not the jolly old red cheek saint as we know him today. There's no doubt that Nicholas was definitely a fun time, as he was reportedly fond of revelry, perhaps a little too much. He was a heavy drinker, and apparently a mean drunk at that, as he liked to get into bar fights, especially if you were pagan or someone who dissed the church. These boisterous maneuvers frequently drew the ire of the unsympathetic non-Christians, who threw Nicholas into the slammer on several different occasions. Reportedly, Nicholas had a crooked nose, which had been broken and improperly set after one of his many brawls. Also, for anyone out there complaining about non-traditional Santa Clauses at the mall, looking at you, Megan Kelly, you might be surprised to know that St. Nicholas was not Lily White. You only need to take a glance at the hundreds of different pieces of iconography to see that he was dark-skinned, being Turkish-Greek. So eventually, Constantine gets around to making Christianity the official religion of the Western world, or whatever, and this gets Nicholas out of jail for pretty much the rest of his life. Nicholas of Myra is recorded as being one of the bishops who attended the convention that put together the Nicene Creed, which is kind of a big deal if you're Christian. This status alone would be cool enough for Nick, as is, but at this very same convention, it is said that he punched a fellow bishop in the face over an argument over Jesus' divinity. Santa saying knock you out. That said, don't get too attached to our patron saint of whoop-ass being some sort of bastion of Christian kindness and mercy. Granted, the following account may have just been propaganda, but it's entirely fitting with the vibe of Nicholas of Myra. When Christianity kicked into high gear, the pagan temples were destroyed. This displaced all of the priests and attendees inside the Temple of Artemis, who came out pleading to Nicholas, asking him for that Christian compassion and mercy that his kind was always talking about. And supposedly, St. Nicholas's response was for them to literally go to hell. Harsh. Most of these stories are somewhat historically verifiable or as close as we're going to get to the truth at this point. But the exploits of the Klaus are entirely the stuff of legend, and there's a few tales that may or may not have happened at all, depending on how willing you are to suspend your disbelief. But hey, isn't that what Christmas is all about? In fact, these legends may have been the ones that cemented the signature moves of St. Nicholas as the giver of gifts and friend to children everywhere. 
But like anything old-timey, the reasons for those presents under the tree and in the stocking, as well as the clever use of chimneys, it's all a lot darker in origin. Perhaps the most outwardly morbid St. Nick story comes to us during a time of terrible famine, which you can imagine was quite frequent in war-torn Asia Minor. While on his travels, Nicholas came into a town stricken with hunger and failed crops. Now, Nicholas wasn't a wuss, and the whole point of Christianity was to go to the places where nobody else wanted to go in order to help those who were the most vulnerable. So a bunch of emaciated corpses in the streets wasn't going to deter a man whose hobbies included knocking out his fellow bishops right in front of the emperor. Nicholas and Myra stopped at the town's inn, requesting lodgings, and he was greeted by the innkeeper and his wife, who had a suspiciously well-stocked larder. This caused Nicholas to raise an eyebrow, and being an out-of-towner with no known next of kin, it made even this ironclad priest a bit weary of going to sleep. Coupled with the fact that the wandering clergyman had just heard tales from the hungry villagers of missing children, Nick knew something foul was at work here. This is when the story becomes less Twas the Night Before Christmas and more Sweeney Todd, because in the middle of the night, St. Nicholas crept down to the basement to discover three very conspicuous barrels stacked up in the corner of the room. <laughs> like Morgan Freeman in a David Fincher thriller, Nick opened the barrels and discovered the bodies of three children, pickled in brine. St. Nicholas roused the authorities, and it was discovered that the wife had been using a type of meat that, shall we say, was very easy to come by. A meat that she enjoyed serving in her savory pies. The worst pies in Asia Minor. And by the way, if you hadn't guessed that meat, human. Fortunately, this grim story has a happy, if not morbid, ending, as St. Nicholas, being endowed with life-restoring superpowers, brought the pickled kiddos back to the land of the living. But all of these tales are just the build-up to the moment when St. Nicholas dons his proverbial cape. Red, naturally. During Nicholas's days as the Bishop of Myra, he caught wind of a poor gentleman raising three daughters all by himself. The girls, born a year apart, were just about to hit marrying age, but there was a major predicament. Namely the patriarchy, but also their father not having enough money to afford a dowry for all three of them. Back in this time, being unable to marry meant that they would have to seek employment as sex workers. Now, I like to think St. Nicholas wouldn't have scoffed at this. I mean, Jesus himself had a pretty friendly and sympathetic attitude towards sex workers in his time. Still, even if the daughters didn't take on the world's oldest profession, they'd be stigmatized anyway by virtue of being unwedded women. Ancient world toxic masculinity for ya. There's several variations on this story, so I'll go with the one I just like best, and you can do the research and look up the others if you want. Nicholas was modest, but he was also a trust fund kid, which meant he had access to money, which he was perfectly content to put towards charitable works. Nicholas of Myra, for being such a big personality, was known to be a bit bashful and humble when it came to doing good deeds, you know, such as bringing people back from the literal dead. He also didn't want to embarrass the man or his three daughters by calling attention to their poverty in public with a free handout. So Nicholas of Myra took the anonymous and ingenious approach. Remember, the three daughters were each a year apart. So over the course of the next three years, shortly before one of the girls reached that good old Marian age, Nicholas would bestow them with a purse of gold coins enough money to put towards their dowry. And the way he delivered these clandestine gifts was simply by throwing them through an open window. 
But after the second year, the father grew suspicious, there being only one character in town both eccentric and charitable enough to pull off a stint like this. So he confronted the bishop directly and asked him if he was the mysterious stranger leaving behind the coin purses. Nicholas, of course, denied any claim and told the man he should thank God alone. But this wasn't enough to satisfy the man's curiosity, so he decided to lay in wait and see who would be poking their head through his window that evening. But Nicholas was also no fool, and he devised a brilliant plan to deliver his third and final gift. As luck would have it, the third daughter had washed her stockings that evening and had hung them over the fireplace to dry. You see where this is going, don't you? Nicholas, in what would become his signature move, dropped the coin purse down the flue, which landed ever so delicately in the third daughter's stocking, hung by the chimney with care. For these acts, not only is Nicholas venerated as the patron saint of children and sailors alike, but he is also known as the guardian saint of sex workers. It's no wonder, then, that a man who had earned so much acclaim and legendary status in life would be honored in death by being entombed in his parish's village of Myra. And of course, later he was canonized as a saint. But the transition from Catholic saint to jolly bestower of Christmas presents is centuries worth of regional myth and variation. So I'll just touch upon a few famous examples, mostly because some of the myths surrounding Santa Claus are racist and problematic as hell. And don't look up a Dutch Christmas unless you're ready for some cringe. Spoilers, there's blackface. In liturgical artwork, St. Nicholas is often portrayed holding three satchels of gold in honor of his most famous deed. In these depictions, the bags of gold are commonly interpreted as three solid gold balls, which were then interpreted by Europeans as being three oranges. This might sound strange, but oranges were considered exotic fruits back in the day because they could not grow in the climates above Iberia, which led to the common myth that the saint resided in Spain. When he visited the Low Countries during the feast day, his gift of choice, therefore, was the rare and precious edible arrangement of oranges or other uncommon fruits. You see this tradition today all over Europe, from the Satsumas of Britain to my personal favorite, those chocolate oranges you have to slam hard on the table to break apart. Mm. To give you the Spark Notes version, the bridge between St. Nicholas and Santa Claus comes about during the saint's original feast day, which was around December 6th on the Gregorian calendar. This was normally the day when children were said to receive gifts from the saint, so that much hasn't changed. But then a little thing called the Reformation happened, and Protestant England, in the spirit of trying to dissociate the saints with Christianity, moved the date to December 25th, in keeping with the celebration of Christmas. Though Martin Luther tried to put a Protestant spin on the tradition by changing the gift-giving saint to a spiritual representation of the baby Jesus, it didn't stick, and St. Nicholas remained associated with the holiday. That said, Christmas was not always associated with children. From the 15th century well until the end of the 19th, it was a more raucous and debaucherous holiday, comparable to New Year's, complete with the alcoholism. As Christianity evolved, more conservative sects wanted to disavow the notorious celebration. This was most definitely the case during the English Civil War, when the new puritanical government decided to outlaw Christmas entirely, those Grinches. In an act of civil disobedience, royalists and Catholics began to spread political cartoons of an embodied figure named Father Christmas, who looked like the hybrid of a certain familiar saint and a figure you might associate with the ghost of Christmas present from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. 
Father Christmas became a popular icon to rally behind, as he represented the good old days, when Christmas meant you could get wasted and pass out in the middle of a 17th century gutter, or whatnot. His instantly iconic look inspired plays and songs, but it wasn't until the Victorian era that we come full circle and see him associated with giving gifts to children. The reason for this shift from Dionysian overseer of Christmas revelry to the benevolent spirit of Yuletide cheer is largely economical, and we have mostly the Industrial Revolution to thank for that. Due to automation and a less agrarian way of living, families could spend more time in the home together. Also, children were no longer expected to go to work for the family's needs at an early age, so they spent more time at home as well. This meant that Christmas could become a holiday for families rather than drunks. Father Christmas accommodated this trend, and when the tradition spread to the States, the Dutch name for St. Nicholas, Sinterklaas, became Santa Claus. But the full transformation was finally cemented with Clement Clark Moore's poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, or as it's more commonly known by its first line, "'Twas the night before Christmas." From this poem, we get the description of Santa Claus's physical attributes and demeanor, as well as the mythos surrounding his visit and reindeer entourage. The image of the saint as we know him in America was popularized by Coca-Cola, as the urban legend goes, but much of that inspiration was actually taken from one of America's pioneer cartoonists, Thomas Nast. In 1863, he illustrated a picture of Santa Claus wearing his red outfit and long white beard in the widely read Harper's Weekly. The rest, of course, is history. Though the man named Nicholas achieved spiritual ascendance, his remains met with a far less dignified ending, depending on how you look at it, as they were plundered and separated over the course of the last millennia. One also has to wonder, how did the people of Bari just come up with the idea to steal the bones of a hundred-year-old spiritual figure? Well, this being around 1087 AD, southern Italy was going through some hard times. The religious wars and crumbling empires had left Greece and Italy with staggering economies and plenty of infighting. With Bari on the ropes, the religious community got to thinking, how can we inject new life into our humble coastal town? And they took a good look at the latest fad pilgrimages to the graves of famous Catholic saints. All of those people coming from out of town needed places to stay and eat, and also probably exclusive merch. So it was very apparent to the people of Bari that if you had a dead saint on premises, your town was going to do just fine. Though Bari didn't exactly have any, those cool cats over at Asia Minor certainly did, and they were a bit distracted at the moment. There was a huge concern among Catholics across Europe that saints and religious institutions in the path of the invading Saracens might end up destroyed or compromised sooner or later, so the people of Bari needed to act now. To be fair, the thieving sailors had a good cover story. According to a very convenient legend, St. Nicholas came to them in a dream and told them to take his bones out of Myra and install them in a new shiny cathedral built specially for his remains. It's as good as an excuse as any, right? So they got them bones, and they put them in a new crypt, with construction overseen by Pope Urban II. This place became the Basilica di San Nicola, which was later joined by an Orthodox church dedicated to the same saint. When the merchants from Bari stole St. Nicholas, they actually only had time to take about half of his bones. Good enough, they said. What was left behind would later be captured by Venetians, who likewise wanted a piece of that holy pie. 
A modern scientific study of the bones available to us confirms that the fragments in Venice and the fragments of Bari actually do belong to the same individual. And those bones are said to be extraordinarily powerful in their own respect. When they were brought to the church in Bari, they continued to secrete the substance known as myrrh, the vials of which are still collected to this very day. Yeah, digest that for a minute. Now, as much as I always feel a bit iffy about going into supernatural territory with this show, secretly, who am I kidding? I relish the opportunity. Magic Santa liquid? I'm totally on board. But as a scientifically minded person, you know, what the heck is going on here? The myrrh can be observed seeping out of the sarcophagus on December 6th, where it's collected every year. Or so they say. No real scientific studies have been undergone on the tomb, so it's unknown if the substance is coming from the actual bones themselves, or if it's coming from the marble sarcophagus, or if it's all the time, or just mysteriously during that one time of year. Being that Bari sits along the water, it's possible that the liquid coming from the casket is just seawater leaching into the underground. But who am I to question a miracle? Now, can the bones of St. Nicholas really be considered a lost treasure if people can actually visit them? Well, that's the thing. We only know where certain pieces of the saint exist today. His original grave, most likely complete with the original undiscovered bone fragments, has not been located. We quite literally do not have all the pieces to put together this puzzle. One major blockade to assembling the complete set of St. Nick is that there are several different cathedrals scattered across Europe and even America that claim to have a piece of Nicholas of Myra, some of these as small as a single tooth, as is the case with his patron cathedral in Prague. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Two Virgins in Quebec has a finger. A church in France had one as well, but then they lost it. In addition to the Venetians getting the scraps of what the sailors from Bari stole, an old Irish tradition tells of Norman crusaders who stopped by in the 12th century and took a few bits back for themselves. In County Kilkenny, Ireland, there is a stone slab that allegedly marks the saint's relocated grave, but this is mere legend and not anything easily authenticated. It can be hard to understand, especially if you were raised Episcopal like I was, why religious institutions would keep and then advertise bits and pieces of human remains. But for many cathedrals, saint relics not only legitimize the individual house of worship, but it also helps draw in visitors and patrons to keep the cathedral afloat. This means aggregating St. Nicholas in his whole form would be no small task, as we're talking almost a hundred different churches who would have to sacrifice their earnings by giving up their relics. But that's kind of what Turkey wants to see happen, at least for the most guilty party here in this strange saga. Sure, it's been a thousand years, but Turkey kind of wants its saint back from Italy. And to be fair, they sort of have every right. St. Nicholas grew up and presided over a Turkish city, so it only makes sense for Demra to be his final resting place. The guy is pretty spread thin in his current state as is. So on the 28th of December 2009, the Turkish government formally requested the remains of St. Nicholas from the government of Italy. And as you might expect, Italy hasn't returned their calls. Even so, where would Turkey put what's left of him? There are some pretty strong candidates for internment, as it turns out. 
East of the Greek city of Rhodes is a Turkish island called Gemeli, which has often been cited as the original location for Nicholas's grave. And I know what you might be thinking right now. Wasn't St. Nicholas taken out of a crypt in Myra? Well, following his death in 326, St. Nicholas was buried on this island by none other than a group of sailors, as he was, of course, their patron saint. Gimli had been used as a trading route, and was once known as the Island of Boats before taking on the very telling moniker of St. Nicholas Island. It wasn't until 300 years later when the saint's remains, presumably intact, were brought home to Myra, 25 miles east of Gemily, and this was partially due to the encroachment of the Saracens. Then there is the infamous tomb where the saint's bones were stolen, which is now in modern Demra. This site was presumably lost for almost a thousand years, until actually just this past year. In 2017, archaeologists may have unearthed what is strongly believed to be St. Nicholas of Myra's tomb, but work will still need to be done to see if any remains of the saint exist below the ruins. So stay tuned for further updates. Since 2007, the Turkish government has sanctioned religious ceremonies at the archaeological site of Nicholas's tomb in Demra. There are plans, after the excavation is complete, to restore the church in its entirety, a project that the government has backed with an investment of 40,000 Turkish lira. Today, the faithful often find it hard to reconcile the image of a red-cheeked elf jiggling like a bowl full of jelly with the more passionate, grumpy, and all-too-human man who became saint. The fight over this interpretation actually came to a very real head in 2005, when the mayor of Demra removed a realistic bronze statue of St. Nicholas and replaced it with a plastic figure of the decidedly more ho-ho-ho variety. The mayor's hope was that the statue would draw in more foreign tourists, who were more likely to recognize the cartoon elf than a solemn man with a crooked nose and humble robes. Fortunately, people got angry, rightfully so, and the original bronze statue was reinstalled. The statue controversy serves as a good lesson. It is, of course, always important to move forward, to adapt, and to embrace change in order to become something more familiar. But it is also important to remember your roots and acknowledge history. Likewise, we also can't pick and choose history when it's most convenient for us. For those who claim that we're redefining Christmas, or even waging war on the holiday itself, they need to take a long, hard look at the past. Because the truth of the matter is that we have been reinventing Christmas since the ink was drying on the first scrolls of the New Testament. The most staunch advocates for upholding so-called tradition would probably be shocked to know that the holiday was not always so family-friendly. And Christmas will continue to change or be celebrated in its own unique way from family to family, new traditions superseding others. We can call him Santa Claus, or Santa Claus, or Father Christmas, but to others he takes on the entirely different form of La Bafana, or even Der Krampus. Because symbols are important, as they are mutable. But wherever Nicholas of Myra is buried, or enshrined, or fragmented, one thing is for sure. His legacy is entirely whole. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. 
If you like this podcast and want to get on Santa's nice list, you can leave a four or five star rating in iTunes so other people can find out about it. You can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or corrections, please send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E's. Our Facebook group is The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast group. Next time, well, we're taking a break. For real this time. I mean, I say that, but maybe I'll do an It Belongs in the Museum episode if I'm feeling especially benevolent. When Relic returns in mid-February, we're going to be heading into our final episodes of this first season, with a deeper focus on the lost treasures of World War II. Hitler might be involved. The adventure continues. <laughs>